That's Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on the way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, Let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. 
Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of Israelites. And Aaron told him everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name's Phil. I'm usually at the 5 p.m., but my wife's given me special permission to stay out late tonight. Uh, so yeah, I'm thrilled to be joining you. Let's uh, pray uh, for God's help, and then we'll look at this fabulous little passage together. Our great God, we pray that you would show us who you are. We pray that we would understand what is taught in this passage so that we might have the confidence to live bold lives for you. Amen. Now, I think as you read this, it's actually pretty hard not to sympathize with Moses because the truth is, deep down, you and I would love what happens to Moses here to happen for us too. I guess there'll be some of us here who wouldn't yet call ourselves Christians and we're still weighing up. Uh, Can I put my trust in Jesus Christ? And it would be so much easier to trust in him if God would just do one of those big, hairy, undeniable miracles right here, right now, tonight. Then it would be just a no-brainer. You know, I'd follow Jesus. Easy. Others of us, uh, we would call ourselves Christians, and we sing all the big words on Sunday, but the problem is that come Monday morning, God kind of shrinks from the Lord of all creation to... A rather small, thin God, if we're honest. And he just doesn't seem quite as big as the other powers in our lives. Uh, The desires of our hearts just seem a lot bigger and stronger. The people who we work with and study with just seem a whole lot more powerful. The people we want to like us have a stronger draw. And the standards and views of our culture that is so condemning of Christianity just seems so much more powerful and convincing than the God of the Bible. And we just think, if God would just give me some massive, clear miracle, some undeniable, massive miracle, then then I would live a bold and courageous life for Jesus. Then I would be self-sacrificial and strong and courageous. And the good news of Exodus 4 the good news of what we've just read is that the great God gives us everything we need to trust him absolutely and to live for him confidently and powerfully. Now, there is a well-worn path, though, that we need to recognize this passage differs from. It's the well-worn path of almost every reluctant hero Hollywood movie. You know how it is. He has a dark past. He doubts himself. He has a secret history of failure, but at the crisis moment, he reaches deep inside and he finds the strength to fulfill his destiny, which is nothing like Exodus. Every Hollywood movie, that's what it is. He reaches down inside and somehow finds he has what he needs to be the man, be the woman who will somehow conquer. But in the history of the Bible, In the history of Exodus, Moses doesn't find God's strength by looking inside himself, but by looking out and leaning on the great God, the God of the Bible. Actually, um, 
as we go through it, I do want to say almost as much about what this passage doesn't mean as what it does mean, because people make an awful lot of messes about passages like this. I remember as a teenager, it's a remarkable, it's an almost a miracle, I can still remember that far back. But anyway, I do remember some things as a teenager, and I remember sitting in a talk on Exodus 4, and the, the main point the preacher had was, this passage tells you to take it by the tail, which meant, in case it's not obvious, that we are by God's power, to do whatever is most dangerous and risky. So in case you're wondering, if a snake were to slither across this floor right now, the stupidest thing to do would be to pick it up by the tail. But by God's power, we are to do what is dangerous. We are to take life by the tail. That was the entire point of the sermon. The problem is, there is nothing in this passage to indicate that what we are meant to do is being held up, uh, is to follow what Moses does by grabbing dangerous animals by the tail. If you go out tomorrow morning and the first slathering staffy, sort of dangerous-looking dog you see, you grab it by the tail, I guarantee you it will not turn into a wooden staff. I guarantee you, actually, there will be one miraculous transformation that will take place. Miraculously, your hand will turn into a chewable dog treat at that moment. But that is as far as it goes. This is not a passage telling us to take it by the tail. As always in the Old Testament, the hero is God. He is at the center of the story. We're not here to learn lessons about how to be more like Moses. We're here to learn lessons of how to trust more deeply in God. And in fact, almost everywhere in this passage, Moses is the anti-example. Almost everything he does is a numpty, and we are to do the opposite. And you do well, basically. If you do the opposite of Moses, you'll go pretty well. Let's look in. So, when we left Moses last week, uh, the Lord God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had spoken to him from the fire of an unburning, burning bush. And he'd promised, I'm going to use you, Moses, to rescue the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and take them to the promised land, as I always had promised. And we return at the start of chapter 4 to find Moses still complaining and questioning God. God has just told him that the Israelite leaders will believe you and they will follow you. And so Moses says, verse 1, Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Which, to be frank, is a little bit well, God, look, I believe you, but look, I've got this friend and my friend really doesn't believe you. And so I was wondering, what sign could you give me, uh, him uh, just to prove that you really exist? Obviously, I think they're really stupid. But I trust you, but they don't. So what sign would you give them? God's not stupid. He knows full well. The issue with Moses is not that Moses is really worried the Israelite leaders won't believe in him. That is an issue. Moses' problem is Moses doesn't believe in God. Moses has doubts. So God promises three signs. The first two signs are for the Israelite leaders. And then the signs two and three are for Pharaoh himself. But all three are for Moses. Drop in with me at verse two. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, 
he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, what on earth is going on with these signs? I mean, put it this way. If God were to appear here right now and say, I will give you any sign you like, any sign you like to prove my existence, who here would choose a snake becoming a rod? Or if God were to say, uh, I will perform any sign you like at work or at college tomorrow, anything you like to prove I'm real, who here would say, I know, um, could I stick a hand inside my uh, my hoodie and take it back out and it's got leprosy and then it doesn't? Or could you maybe turn the office water fountain into a blood bank? It just, why would you choose those signs? There is some reason to it. So, if of a wintry afternoon you decide to be cultured and head over to the British Museum, as you may want to, you will find it is full of ancient artefacts that a previous generation of British archaeologists offered to look after safely for various countries around the world. Very kind of them too. If you go into the Egyptology section, you will find amongst the sarcophagi and uh, the... I did Latin. And the mummified bodies, you'll see the crowns of lots of ancient pharaohs. There may even be a picture of a crown. There you go. Tutankhamun's uh, crown. And you'll see on the front is the emblem of a cobra. And all the Egyptian crowns, there was a, a picture of a snake. And the reason was, very simply, that this was the, the emblem of authority and power in Egypt. And so what is going on with this first sign is it is a subtle sign, but a sign nonetheless that the real power and authority in Egypt is the Lord God. And we'll see what happens uh, when he makes the stick into a snake in front of Pharaoh. You see, the three signs are not just random. They prefigure the plagues. So one set of plagues are all about God demonstrating his control over living creatures. Snakes, frogs, gnats, locusts, etc. Another set is over human health. A leprous hand, and then there'll be boils, and finally human death. Another set of the plagues are all God's control over the forces of nature. So the water of the Nile becomes blood. Hailstones will fall down. Darkness will appear in the middle of the day. The sea will be split. God will show his control. Well, that should settle it. So uh, let's drop in at verse 10. So Moses, full of faith in the mighty power of God, set his face toward Egypt and he strode out to confront Pharaoh. Oh, sorry, that's what it should say, isn't it? Um, uh, what the Bible actually says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Seriously? What is his problem? Well, his problem is that three and a half thousand years before Hollywood released a movie, Moses has got a Hollywoodized view in his mind. He cannot get out of his head his own inadequacies. He is looking at it as if God has said, Moses, by your strength and your courage and your charisma, lead my people out of Egypt. I don't think that's what God told him to do. It's extraordinary. He is staring at a burning bush that is not being consumed. 
He is speaking to Almighty God. But he's thinking all the time like an atheist. As if God's not there. As if the only resources Moses has to rely on are Moses himself. As if it is all his resources and abilities that will get Israel out of Egypt. So God reminds him, Moses, don't be an idiot. I, the Lord, gave you your mouth. I determine the powers of speech. I will give you all that you need. So verse 13, sadly, uh, Moses loses his privilege. But interesting, the people of God get a visual illustration of what a prophet is. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs. Now that is an odd note to finish the little section on. Why on earth all this stress about a lump of wood? Why is it, given this prominent position at the beginning and end of this section, why this stress on the staff? Well, put simply, the staff in the Bible is the emblem of God's rule. And that's not surprising. It, it tends to be in most cultures. So our queen has a scepter, a sort of ornate, bejeweled staff that is her emblem of rule. And Moses will rule the people of, e- of Israel for God. Secondly, the staff is the, the shepherd's weapon with which he defends the flock against uh, any wolves or lions. And God will defend his people, Israel. God will use Moses as shepherd to protect and provide for his flock. He will rout armies and he will split seas and he will bring water from a rock through this staff. Now, let's be honest, it seems a little bit odd that a simple staff, a simple wooden staff, could have such a central place in the salvation of God's people from Egypt. But if you'll allow a little stretch, then 1,500 years later, a simple wooden cross will bear the body of a servant of God who never doubts God. And yet his death on that cross will be salvation for all people. It's amazing how significant a simple bit of wood can be in the Bible. So finally, Moses finally goes. Verse 18, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Gosh, does he still not believe God? Jethro said, go and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Why is it important that the people who wanted to kill Moses are dead? I mean, surely God can protect Moses from the people who want to kill him. Yes, of course he can. The point though is... It's not, okay, now it's safe for you to go back to Egypt. It's anything but safe in Egypt. The point is, God has already started to smash the wicked power of Egypt. God has already begun his rescue. The people who wanted to kill Moses, the rescuer, are dead. God is starting to open the doors of the prison and will lead his people out. 
Okay, if the first half of the passage has questions to intrigue us, the second half now has questions that don't so much intrigue us as alarm us, embarrass us about God and offend us sometimes. You've got this compassionate God of rescue who's so patient with Moses and now he's uh, killing people left, right and centre. And then there's the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And as for verses 24 to 26, well, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you at the beginning of the week, I did seriously think it's a very long chapter. Maybe it makes sense to stop at verse 23 so we can deal with those verses properly. Yes, and then I realized I was criticizing Moses for being a chicken, and it was probably time that I allowed God's word to dwell richly amongst us in the whole passage. Okay, two things to bear in mind. First, we have to work out what do these verses mean in context. We mustn't rip them out and try and make them answer the questions we've got. We've got to look at them in the passage and see what are they designed to address. And secondly, we need to remember the God of the Bible is the God of Exodus 3.14. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He's not embarrassed about who he is. And he has the right to be who he is. And we do not have the right to change him. Okay, let's start with verses 21 to 23 and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Isn't that just colossally unfair? I mean, here's God judging Pharaoh for for being hard-hearted and stubbornly refusing to let Israel go, when all the time it's God who's hardened Pharaoh so that he won't let them go. And that just seems unfair to us. Well, what what is the point of these verses? They are not designed to answer the philosophical question of free will. They're not designed to teach how does a sovereign God interact with responsible creatures. Those aren't the questions the ancient Israelite slaves were asking. Six times we read God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And about seven times in the next chapters we just told Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It is clear that whatever else is true, Pharaoh is responsible for the state of his own heart. He's not a robot that God has programmed. But you see, that's not the issue that the ancient Israelites cared about. None of them were asking, is Pharaoh really responsible for his wicked actions? Their question was, is God anything like powerful enough to deal with Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the demigod. He is the most powerful force on this planet. And you're telling me that there's this God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who none of us have seen for 400 years. And you're telling us that he is powerful enough to rescue us from Pharaoh. Are you mad? Really? Yes, he is. He is so powerful that even when Pharaoh rejects him, Pharaoh is only carrying out his will. He is so powerful and so supreme that even in Pharaoh's wicked resistance of God's will, somehow 
he is still fulfilling God's will and somehow he is still subject to God's sovereign control. You can trust this God. See, these verses aren't designed to give philosophical satisfaction to 21st century skeptics. They're designed to give practical encouragement to suffering slaves. That's the point of them. Okay, secondly, the whole business of uh, the killing of Pharaoh's son in verses 22 to 23. Firstly, God is fair. Pharaoh wants to kill God's son, and so God will kill Pharaoh's son. That is justice. And secondly, how wonderful. How wonderful that God's description is not, the Israelites are the people who worship me. Not even though the people I made, but they are my son. It is great to read that the God of the Bible has this sort of passionate jealousy for his people. This is a God who will not let you go or let somebody snatch you out of his hands or let you fall away. This is a God who has a serious, unbending, unshakable commitment to you. That is not just a philosophical idea. That is not just an act of will, but is a burning fire in his heart. He loves his people, and he will let nothing happen to them. And then in verses 27 to 31, the point very simply is everything happens exactly as God said it will. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him and also about all the miraculous signs he commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped, just as the Lord had said. As one theologian puts it, Exodus is a play in which God is the producer, the director, and the principal actor, as well as the author. All of which which brings us back to verses 24 to 26 and the ugly heart of this passage. Okay, some background before we dive in. Circumcision is the covenant ceremony, the covenant, the binding agreement between God and his people by which God commits himself to be their God, to protect them and provide for them. And the ceremony for this uh, covenant is circumcision, which is a, a visceral sign of being cut off from the world and set apart for God. That's what's going on in Genesis 17 when the covenant is enacted. Okay, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant, the sign of being God's people. And Moses has met God at the burning bush. Moses has been appointed the leader of God's people. And Moses hasn't even bothered to get his own son circumcised. Thankfully, Moses' wife, Zipporah, acts and circumcises their son and saves their lives. It is interesting, just as an aside, uh, you often hear the Bible's a misogynist book. It's a patriarchal story of men and the oppression of women. On the surface, 
the Old Testament's about Abraham and Moses and all these men. Read it carefully and you see again and again and again what you see here. Who's the hero? Who's the one who cares about the covenant? Zipporah. A woman. What's more, a non-Israelite pagan woman. And again and again you find in the Old Testament the hero of the story, humanly speaking, is an outside woman. Despised in that culture and yet honoured by God. This is no misogynist book. But what does this odd episode of blood shedding and touching bits of foreskin to people have to say to us? I mean, seriously. Here's the big point. It does not matter that Moses is destined to be the great leader of God's people. It doesn't matter that Moses has experienced God in the flaming fires of the burning bush. It does not matter that Moses has performed miracles with his hands through God's power. None of that matters. God has made his covenant and said this is the ceremony, circumcision. And so if Moses doesn't do what God has said, then Moses remains outside of God's people and in desperate danger from God. He still needs to have his family circumcised. God says, this is the way in to be part of my people. This is the way in to enjoy the blessings of being my people and me being your God. And if Moses doesn't go through that way, then Moses' family is in danger and cut off from God. Now, circumcision no longer matters. It was always a temporary sign for the Israelites. It is not for us. For us, we get forgiveness and relationship with God under the new covenant through Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus. And baptism is our sign of uh, putting your trust in Jesus and sharing in his death on the cross and sharing in his new life and his resurrection. It doesn't matter if your dad is a vicar. It doesn't matter if you have had transcendental spiritual experiences that give you just a deep connection with God like few people you've ever met. It doesn't even matter if God has done great stuff through you. If, you know, you've seen, you've actually seen miracles happen. You've prayed for friends to be healed and through your prayers, God has healed people. None of that matters. None of it counts for getting you into God's people. God has said, the only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. The only way to be saved. And therefore, the only way for us to be saved is to do what God has said and to go through the door God has given us and to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, even though the verses either side of verses 24 to 26 stress God is sovereign and he saves his people by his mighty power, that is not an excuse not to do what God has said. It's a reason. It's the only reason to do what God has said. That's the first thing. Do what God says. If you have never, if you've never entered into the covenant, then put your trust in Jesus tonight and you can know forgiveness and freedom and life. What about the signs, though? What about the signs? Uh, Moses grumbles and demands, and God gives him a whole load of miraculous party tricks to prove God is there and prove God is powerful. Fantastic. How much do I have to grumble before God does that to me? Will God give me miraculous signs if I just ask him enough and refuse to do anything until he does, like Moses? No. And sort of yes. Firstly, let me warn you, when verse 14 says, 
Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Here's a little hint. When the Bible uses the phrase, the Lord's anger burned against, it is generally speaking a good idea not to do the thing that caused God's anger to burn. So demanding signs, best avoided. You'll never find an encouragement in the Bible to stamp your little feet and say, God, I'm not doing anything until you give me my own pet miracle. Never. They happen very, very rarely in the Bible and almost always it's a sign of a lack of faith and causes God's anger. But actually, the wonderful truth is that God does give us the miraculous signs we long for and need. Listen to these words at the end of John's Gospel, his reliable eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. John 20, 30 to 31, amazing verses. Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. God performed a whole host of miraculous signs so that you and I would put our trust in Jesus. Far better than some stick becoming a snake. Most amazingly of all, the Lord Jesus was put to death publicly, gruesomely, and three days later he rose triumphantly to life and has never died again. That is a sign and a half. And then the Lord had it accurately, reliably recorded in the words of the Bible so that you and I could know with certainty, so that we could have the signs we do need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. What is more, as well as having this sign of the evidence of the Bible, the truths contained in here, we also have our own signs. All those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we do have a sign. We have our own testament, our own story of how God took us when we were far from him and brought us to life when we were dead, of how God forgave us and brought us into his family, of how God is at work by his power transforming us even now. We have all the signs we need to put our trust in God and to know he is with us. And that brings me on to the last thing I want to say, which is that as you seek to serve God in the challenges and opportunities of your life, don't be a practical atheist like Moses. I'm too weak is not an excuse not to serve God. It is the first qualification for serving God. Because our job is not to show the world, I am a mighty, wonderful servant of God. Our job is to show the world, Jesus Christ is the mighty, wonderful saviour of God. I don't need to be powerful. I just need to tell people about the almighty, all-powerful Jesus Christ. Uh, the world bicycle speed record was broken this week. Anybody read that news? wasn't broken by Sir Bradley Wiggins, the only cyclist most of us have heard of. It wasn't broken by Lance Armstrong, the kind of doped-up adrenaline um, steroidal junkie cyclist that the rest of us have heard of. Uh, it was actually, you know what, you or I could have broken the world record because it was not about the cyclist. It was all about the bike, which had an enormous space shuttle-sized rocket strapped to it, which meant it reached, check this, 207 miles an hour. Anybody here ever log their commute on Strava? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> imagine what that would do to the online reputation. Yeah, cut your commute anyway. The rider had no special qualifications other than being nuts enough to strap himself onto a bike that was going to do 200 miles an hour. 
Because the scientists who conducted the experiment, the team who built the bike, weren't asking him to pedal as hard as you can so that you can somehow reach 200 miles an hour. They weren't asking him to, to do anything by his power. They were just giving him the privilege of strapping himself to this contraption and enjoying the ride. And you see, when God took a retirement age, 80-year-old shepherd from the desert and said, I want you to rescue my people from Egypt and I will do mighty miraculous works through your words and your staff. God wasn't asking Moses to do anything by his own strength. God was giving Moses the immense privilege of being the instrument through whom God would work mightily. When God tells you, put your trust in me and I will give you salvation through Jesus Christ, he's not asking you to earn it, to be good enough to earn your way to God, to perform strong enough things, great enough things, bold enough things, self-sacrificial enough things that somehow God thinks you are worth my forgiveness. He's giving it to us as a free gift to receive by faith and that's all. And when this God calls you to serve him now in every area of life, he is not calling us to find the power to love people who, even people who hurt you, even people who hate you. He's not calling on you to convince people who are cleverer than you and more confident than you, convince them to put their trust in Jesus Christ. He is giving us the privilege of being his instruments as he does those things that he can and will and does do through ordinary people like you and me. See, the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is at work, alive in you and me who trust in God. Our God is no small God. Nine times out of ten, the Old Testament passages, we're not to say, I'm like Moses, Joshua, whoever. But I tell you what, as I read this passage, as I studied it this week, I realized we are, I am very much like Moses. And the rightful response is to repent, to confess our doubt and our disbelief in God's power and spend more time meditating on how the Bible reveals a God of awesome, unlimited power and love to me. And to spend more time reflecting on how I've seen God at work in spite of me in my life. To spend more time praising and thanking God as we read of his mighty power in ridiculous places like Saudi Arabia and Syria and China. Of God using frail, weak people like us to do the most incredible things. He is an awesomely powerful God and he is utterly committed to us, his people. The God who promised, I will be with you, is a God who's given us all the proof and all the power we need. So act in faith as Zipporah did. Obey him and serve him as Moses should have done. And enjoy the ride. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are the God of power and might. We thank you that salvation is trusting in what you have done, not achieving anything ourselves. And we thank you, Father, that serving you is not a matter of somehow trying to find the power to do things that are beyond us, but rather it is 
enjoying the privilege of seeing how you, our almighty God, are at work by your Spirit, even through people like us. Thank you for this privilege. Amen.